Hi friends, welcome back. My guest today is current Modern Wisdom record holder and old-time friend, George Mack. He is the human that tempted me to go out to Dubai, or maybe we egged each other on, I'm not sure. Anyway, he's the person who has spent the last month with me out in Dubai, and at the very beginning of that trip, we recorded Mental Models 104, the bull or bear edition. <laughs> if you imagine your mind as an operating system, Mental Models are apps that you can install to give yourself extra functionality and improve decision-making. They've been popularized by guys like Charlie Munger and Shane Parrish from fs.blog, and today George takes us through another batch of his favorites. So expect to learn about our brand new game, Bull or Bear, how you can use anchoring to get laid, why numeracy is a superpower, why remote working is a blessing and a curse, and much more in other news. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Surfshark VPN. Thank Jeebus for Surfshark. It kept me going while I was away in Dubai. It allowed me to use Skype. It allowed me to access Netflix back in the UK. I have to say Dubai is great, but Dubai Netflix is a little lacking. It also stops hackers from viewing your information. It stops websites from split testing you on prices for products that you are already trying to buy. And it means that you can access all the world's Netflix library just like I did, no matter whether you're in Dubai or the UK or Japan or the US or anywhere else. The USA has the biggest Netflix library that I've ever seen. It's insane and unfair. And for the price of less than a cup of coffee per month, you can access it. It's basically supercharging your Netflix for £1.59 a month or something like that. And it takes two seconds to download. Also, you can use it across all your devices, your laptop, your iPad, your phone. It literally is just an app that you press one button on and everything's done. Enter the code modernwisdom at surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom for 83% off, three months free, and a 30-day money-back guarantee. That's surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom, 83% off, three months free, and a 30, 30, 30, 30-day money-back guarantee. But for now, it's time to teach you about bear or bull. I am so excited with the wise and wonderful. George Mack. I'm joined all the way from Dubai by the man himself, Mr. George Mack. How are you? I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. How are you? I'm well. How could we not be well on the 25th floor? This beautiful Dubai Marina apartment. There's worse places to do a podcast, isn't there? Yeah, it's a contrast to Newcastle and Manchester, right? Or Skype. Contrast. Yeah, and or Skype, yeah. The year of Zoom finished up in Dubai. So yeah, not not bad. Big year, 2020, a lot of stuff's happened. What are some of the main insights that you've realised in 2020? Oh, it's a good, that's a good question. Um, I'm thinking obsessively about remote work and the effect that that has on location. I'm sure even the fact that we're here right now is quite, <laughs> quite a good little A-B test of that, um, yes. proofs in the pudding. But it's going to be very, very interesting because we were saying, like, are you bullish or bearish on people moving, particularly the UK, because the UK has very poor weather. Um, and for me at the minute, I've been thinking, if I move abroad, what, what would the checklist be or if I want to work remote? And as long as it has good weather, good time zone, 
and like relatively good economic social activity, what does the UK have that that you know what I mean? Like the UK for me is only viable for a few months of the year, and it's going to be very interesting to see how many people leave on mass, or if they do leave on mass. Mm. And I think as well, that's probably not just going to be for the UK. Everyone thinks the place that they grew up, unless it's unbelievably good, yeah. is probably a bit crap. Yeah. You know, everyone's disparaging about their hometown, even if your hometown was Dubai Marina. Because mm. it's just what you're used to. It's mm. not cool or different anymore. So, yeah, I wonder whether you're going to get mass swapping of populations from different countries. I think once you've opened that door, even though I do think it will, the pendulum will swing back to more and more office-based stuff, once you've opened that door, there's some people who are going to refuse to go back. So it's a mm. very, very interesting time to be living through. And whether, because you've got two thought processes that run in your head, you've got obviously A, the vaccine comes out and things go back to normal. But even then you potentially got B, which is you have mass migration at levels you've never seen before. I, I was chatting to somebody in the property business and they said when... COVID happened, they expected everything to come tumbling down, but actually they had the busiest two months that they've ever had. It was like the equivalent of a year. Because I've got this idea that I've been thinking about, which is you have throughout childhood, you've kind of got very clear events. You've got I don't know, primary school, you've got year one, you've got year two or grade one, grade two. And then you go in the UK, you've got GCSEs, you've got A-levels, you've got your degree. But then in adulthood, all you've basically got is house, marriage, kids, death. <laughs> I think that COVID is now an event that exists. So like, there's people who are like, oh, pre-COVID and then mm. post-COVID. So it causes a lot of behaviour change. It's really fascinating to see. Well, think about what the UK is trying to do at the moment. They've called it a circuit breaker lockdown. Now, why have they called it a circuit breaker lockdown? It's because they're trying to create a, a jolt in the system. You know, they've just added another little module in, just a little bookmark. And you're, you're correct. People live their life in epochs. This is what I learned from Tucker Max. Live your life in epochs. You're the the sports guy for you, like the football freestyler as a kid. You're the, the university student. You're the young entrepreneur. You're the young mother or father. You're the the um, person who's in a relationship and, and retired somewhere. You know what I mean? That's how we break our lives up when you're correct. Maybe this is going to be one of those bookmarks in life mm. for people. Mm. Um yeah, well, you're totally right. I mean, we flew out here on three days' notice. Two, well, we just decided on like 48 hours' notice. Got a PCR test. You drove across Manchester to get a PCR test off some guy in a pair of tracksuit bottoms. He shoved it down my throat, yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah, He did. You have to pay extra for that, usually. <laughs> yeah, and then he did the PCR test. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so everybody is here for mental models. Big pressure. One, two, and three were wildly successful online. What have you got for us today? Yeah, well, Rocky Four is my favourite film. So I, I'm a big fan of the fourth episode of things. So I thought I'd call me some heat. So late last night, I was reading through uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac, which is sort of Charlie Munger's collection of all his essays. And I originally found out this thing from Ben Francis, the guy who's the founder of Gymshark. I was watching one of his vlogs and he said, within this book, Poor Charlie's Almanac, there's a less... Um, an, essay slash lecture on Coca-Cola that's like the best thing he's ever read um, and it's sort of Charlie Munger he says in the book afterwards that he kind of regretted doing it because nobody really understood it or it was too complex or it was it wasn't politically correct enough or whatever but when you go through it it's like Jesus Christ so the context of this talk is um, Charlie basically says if you're in 1884 and you have all the sort of base mental models or academic principles in place and uh, 
multi-millionaire George Glotz comes along and he's got a competition countrywide and says, pitch me um, basically a new drinks beverage idea that if I give you $2 million in 1884, by I think 2024 or 2034, it will be worth $2 trillion. So how do you turn $2 million into, I believe, $2 trillion? And basically, Charlie says, you could have predicted everything that Coca-Cola did and how it succeeded by just base level mental models. So he goes through and goes like, okay, what's my checklist to begin with? Like, how would I explain it to this millionaire to get investment? And what's fascinating about this is the context is Charlie owns Coca-Cola or like Berkshire Hathaway basically own Coca-Cola now. So you can tell that he's mentally gone through this and looked at every single the fundamentals of how this business he's highly invested exactly. in, why it's being so effective. Yeah. And he basically says, this is the issue of academia. They don't teach it like this. So he said, there's five things to go through when you're doing it. So number one, decide like a big no-brainer question, the big no-brainer stuff. Number two, use math to help explain the world. Number three, inversion. So think problems through in reverse. Number four, the best wisdom is sort of elementary academic wisdom. So he comes on to like classical conditioning, operant conditioning from psychology. And then number five, how do you get big lolliposer effects where it's all these things tied together. So he says like to begin with like for the no-brainer side of things, um, we are uh, we, we're never going to create something worth two trillion by selling some generic beverage. Therefore, we must make your name Coca-Cola because he says that like if you called it like George Glotz's drink, like you need in order to get global appeal, you need a name that appeals globally is the first thing. So this will require developing a product having universal appeal because it harnesses powerful elementary forces. The next thing he goes on to, he goes on to a few more no-brainers, but uses maths to explain the world. And this is one of the things I probably struggle with because maths is, I think the way they teach it in school makes you think it's very, very boring. But when you actually understand that maths is the only thing that's probably true like when you really think about it um and i i like i work in obviously like the d2c e-commerce space which is blown up right now and i'll have calls with founders each week about like how they want to scale things and everybody's very very clear about their like brand values and their brand guidelines very often and this vision that they have but nobody knows their margins Nobody knows, their, <laughs> nobody knows their LTV. Nobody knows the scale they have to hit. Why do you think that is? Um, twofold. One, I think people, or some people just naturally ignore numbers from bad experiences at school. And then two, numbers is reality. And I think we try and avoid reality where we can as well. Yeah. I wonder how much of it perhaps is just that you can wing brand values and marketing and creative ideas. If you turn up to a meeting and you don't know your LTV or you don't know your bottom line, you can't just make it up. Like, it's either there or it's not there. Mm. There is no in-between. Whereas you can turn up to a brand meeting and be like, right, brand values, and just yeah, yeah, yeah. create something on the spot. So I think the charlatans, the charlatans get found out mm. much more with that. So what's next? So on that, so just, just to sort of hit the, the math side of things home, is, so he says here, on average, uh, so if we had to get to three trillion, we can guess reasonably by 2034, there will be about eight billion beverage consumers in the world. So he's breaking down the map, the fundamental maths of it. So on the, yeah, on the numerical fluency, he then breaks down, looking at Coca-Cola's business model, sort of the opposite I was saying then, where it's all brand guidelines. So if he's thinking of how do we get to 
2 trillion by 2034, he breaks down the whole market, so it understands the total addressable market. So on, uh, so on average, each consumer will be much more prosperous in real terms than the average consumer of 1884. Each consumer is composed mostly of water and must ingest about 64 ounces of water per day. This is eight eight ounce servings. Therefore, if our new beverage and can flavor and otherwise improve only 25% of ingested water worldwide, we can occupy half of that new market. Therefore, he breaks down the numbers, we can sell 2.9 trillion eight ounces servings in 2034. And if we can net four cents per serving, we will earn $117 billion annually, which will equate to a net, um, the business value at two trillion. So though that numerical fluency, that like the base numeracy that people have, I'd say, People talk about what's the modern numeracy. I don't think there is a modern numeracy because it doesn't exist. Modern numeracy is the modern numeracy, if that makes sense, because we very rarely ever think in numbers mm. as a result. It seems there that you're deciding the direction of where you're going to lay some paving mm. with that value. You can't hit the number that you want. And all of the other stuff, the taste, the marketing, everything else... That's the traffic signs, that's the road markings, that's the particular way that you manage the traffic. But in terms of road, this is what we need to hit, this is where we're starting, that's where we need to finish. How can we apply that to something which is a little bit less abstract than so, a billion, trillion dollar drinks brand? So, well, there's a good example, one of my favorite ones that, again, it's so easy to notice, thing and, and sometimes harder to implement it because you just catch yourself your own bullshit, of um, Kiefer Boy, uh, who... Were, I think he's taken more companies public than anybody ever. Um, he's part of the PayPal Mafia. I think he was involved at YouTube, LinkedIn, Square, a lot of companies. Really good follow on Twitter. Um, and he did a talk at Stanford called How to Operate. And he says the biggest thing with like elite level CEOs that he does, like the biggest breakthrough exercises, he'll say, what's like your priorities at the minute? And they'll say, number one priority is recruitment. Number two priority is sort of marketing and sales. And then number three is X, Y, Z. And he goes, cool. So he gets them to write their priorities down and then he gets them to track their time for a week. And then at the end of the week goes through and just purely like on a numerical basis, it goes, so recruitment was your number one priority. Yet 5% of your time was allocated to that. So I think even time just as a a way of Mm. measuring things is something that, be very very rarely use how would you class the model that we're talking about here then so i mean how you describe as a model is just basic numeracy like basic arithmetic like taking principles from mathematics and applying it because so few people apply basic arithmetic and i find that when i chat to people who are starting brands online the biggest difference is that there's always one person who uses basic numeracy and if they don't, if there's not one there... In the team. It, it, it never works. It yeah. never works. It's guaranteed to fail. Because I, it makes sense because that is... If you're trying to build a successful business, it's underpinned by numbers. And if you don't even look at the fucking numbers... <laughs> I, it, you may get a few edge cases, like where it's like a, a Kylie Jenner, but even then, I imagine she's got a guy or a girl who's crunching the numbers. Yeah. What's next? What have we got next? Um, so then, just moving through that... He then talks about like operant and classical conditioning. So if you was looking at 
he says how you can explain Coca-Cola. So you've gone through the numeracy, you've gone through the no-brainer questions, and then let's look at like the operant slash classical conditioning that you'd use. So number one, from an operant conditioning, which is basically rewarding people for behaviours, um, and then classical conditioning is sort of Pavlov's dog, so when they associate a certain thing. So what's fascinating when like looking at Pavlovian conditioning, he talks about um, why, and it, this is interesting, he says you should not let anybody have the name Cola, because as soon as you do, you lose that association with your brand. So if other people can start having it, they can hop on your classical conditioning. And it's he does numerous points in here that Coca-Cola broke um, and how they almost ruined it. So another example is when Coca-Cola changed their recipe and he's yeah. Charlie Munger lost his shit about it, I think. And he was like, so it almost killed the company, he argues. He says the two things you can't do in the speech looking at it from classical conditioning is one, have, let anybody have the trademark Coca-Cola, which is why they enforce it so hard. Um, but even then you've got like roller cola and you've got all these knockoffs. Cola. And you've got to think the damage that's done to their their business model is huge. Um, and then changing the recipe, like a recipe that people have built up and associated over the years of having this reward, having this reward, the damage that can do. Um, and then you understand like how interesting slash nuanced Coca-Cola's business is via classical conditioning. So they, they used, he talks about in the speech of, you want something that never has a negative feedback loop. You want something that can never have negative classical conditioning. So with a good example of, of that, or maybe even negative operant conditioning is, you start drinking the drink and the more you drink it, the more sick you get of the drink. Mm. But cola removes all sort of taste memory. It's built to remove all taste memory. So people can drink it like water and just keep ingesting it, keep ingesting it. So that's part of one of his principles for how it can become so big is that you can never get sort of a negative operant conditioning loop going or a negative classical conditioning loop going. So it's just constant positive reinforcement. And then he breaks down, okay, using classical conditioning, using operant conditioning, do we go for a hot drink or do we go for a cold drink? And he basically looks at the world, going back to numbers, looks at the world and says, it's much easier to provide something that cools people down. Therefore, go for a cold drink because on average, people want something that cools them down rather than heats them up. And they, people will drink Coca-Cola in the morning, mm. but hot drinks people tend to drink at certain periods, whereas the cooling effect, people then associate. You know, so when you're hot and you drink Coca-Cola, you have that cooling effect, you associate it with something positive. Mm. So it's just fascinating that like, seeing all these principles intertwine. And he even gives examples with the trademark and with the um, the almost changing the recipe as ways where Coca-Cola almost fucked up, but their business model is so good mm. based on these mental models and these principles that they still are getting there slash have got there. Do you think, how much of this do you think was thought through and how much of it is emergent and look? Good question. Well, he argues that you could have thought it through. And I guess that's why he's he invested in the talking the shit out He is post-talking the shit about it. But his basic argument is, is these elementary principles still exist. Mm -hmm. So... Even now, like let's say, for example, you're sitting down and trying to come up with certain ideas, using those fundamentals yeah. will still be incredibly better. Whether you can come up with Coca-Cola, obviously there's so much luck involved. Um, and there's so, I mean, you're gonna, you've got to go through the whole talk and you see how much nuance there is to the way he's thinking about it. But I would say those elementary principles of mathematics, um, stuff like that you shouldn't avoid. He's saying like, we should always avoid letting people have our trademark, letting people do this. Um, classical conditioning, operant conditioning. If you actually then begin to look at so many different brands, you just see these fundamental principles beneath them. Mm. One of the interesting stories that I had about Coca-Cola was, I remember the world's first portable water distillation unit. It's about three times the size of a refrigerator. 
and they were trying to look at different ways to get clean water. It was this philanthropist guy, engineer, and they were looking at different ways to get it to people, and they were thinking, like, how on earth are we supposed to deliver something like this, of this size, to the backwaters of Africa, to places where there's no roads? And as they're there, they're sat outside of a little kiosk cafe, you know, like a classic sort of... Uh, third world cafe type thing that's just plastic chairs and they looked and it's got Coca-Cola branding above it and like Coca-Cola has access to give people Coke where they can't get clean water mm. um, and that really is just notoriety it's interesting when you think about that when you really zoom out you realise that the world isn't that big it's massive from an individual perspective but from a market perspective like there's only one Coca-Cola Pepsi are also big, and there's other drinks brands that are large, like Red Bull and stuff, but no one's Coca-Cola. Mm. And there's only 7 billion people. You can't, there's no room for another Coca-Cola until you kill that one off. You couldn't have two running in parallel, but you could imagine another universe in which there's an Earth with 35 billion people on. Is there room for competition? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's interesting. One of the mental models that we haven't spoken about yet is anchoring. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of anchoring. And I was reading not long ago uh, about, it was from Rob Henderson's newsletter, about how people can use anchoring to get laid. So can you explain what anchoring is first? And then I'll... Uh... Anchoring, um, we, I think we mentioned it the other day when we was chatting, actually, like this example. Oh, yeah. In business negotiation of sort of almost stating a certain... Apparently Trump says this a lot in The Art of the Deal, so he'll state like a, a price that's super high to begin with, which means that then when he, let's say for example, he wants 5 million, he will stay 10 million because now he's anchored them around 10 million. So when they barter down to 5 million, his actual price, he's anchored it to this 10 that they feel like they've got a deal, but he's got what he wanted. Whereas if he came in at five, maybe they'd say one because you realize a lot of these negotiation stuff is just people putting their finger in the air. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, that ties quite a slight fork on the idea is this idea of like, reflexivity and how much do you know what reflexivity is the model, no. model there I think George Soros he's like obviously the huge like people go mental about he's the guy behind everything bad isn't he he is um, Alex Jones's arch nemesis right <laughs> in Alex Jones's head maybe he's in the real world as well right I don't know so but he has a very good essay on reflexivity um, and the best example I got from reflexivity is let's say you have two stand-up comedians you have one stand-up comedian that um, that tells a joke another stand-up comedian that tells a joke I saw almost a parallel universe one where he immediately apologises for the joke afterwards going oh I sh sorry I shouldn't have said that and the other one who just kind of laughs it through and moves on to the next one Dave Chappelle style even though they've told the exact same joke and they're the exact same person in the exact same environment and the exact same crowd how they react to it influences the way the crowd reacts mm -hmm. and you can then see that a lot so I found that, like, if I have a friend who's, um, let's say they've broken up with somebody and they're, like, really depressed about it, then, I, then like, I start reacting to that, if that makes sense. Yes. And then I'm, like, thinking about them more. Da, da, da. But if they're just, like, super... You're just kind of constantly looking at other people's facial expressions. Yeah. So that's more like a, a psychological mimetic anchoring. Exactly. In body language. That's really interesting. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. But the, my favourite example of anchoring is that everyone that owns a restaurant should have quite a high price platter as one of the first things that people see when they look on the menu. So some sort of special appetizer, 
sharing platter deal thing at the top. And if you say that that's £45, yeah. the starter that's 11 quid but should be eight actually looks like a great deal. So there's a famous example from The Economist that many people listening may be familiar with where they play around with prices. And you see, by changing nothing other than the anchor, you can increase the value of the customer by like 50%, mm. which is mad. And the example that Rob Henderson gave, which again is a psychology one, I suppose, is you can use anchoring to look more attractive when you're going out dating. So what you want to do, his argument is, is find a friend that looks kind of similar to you, but is uglier. And the reason for that is that people will use them. Is that why you're them. around with me? <laughs> <laughs> they, they will look at them and you as within the mm. same league, mm. you know? Like if someone was to say, this is how much the appetizer is, but that car over there is worth this much money, that kind of doesn't really work. You're not anchoring within the same category. So if you go out with an Asian friend who's like any pick your attractiveness level, it's like, well, I can't, you don't look Asian. Like, mm. so th there's no point in doing it. So yes, if you want to get laid, find a friend who looks a bit like you, but is uglier and oh, you can days. do that. And also there's, I've got some buddies and I'm sure that you do as well, who will decide to go to live music events. Oh yeah. yeah. Like go to gigs because they look like a knockoff yeah. version of the artist. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, that only helps if then the crowd that you find attractive is that. So like my issue with that is my crowd would be like the busted, McFly <laughs> side of things. So yeah, it's, not, it's not, my, not my type really. Yeah, no. Interesting. What you got next? Power laws. So I wanted to get this up, hence why I was on my phone just then. So power laws comes from statistics. Um, and I'm not going to try and go through like the actual like um, equation side of things. But a power law essentially is, is kind of like the way you can explain monopolies that basically, what's the, um, the line from the, uh, the film where it's like first prize is a, what is it? Like um, first prize is a car of some sort, second prize is a set of steak knives, third prize you're fired. So like Facebook's a good example of that where <laughs> basically a, a power law is something where um, the more you win, the more you win. So it's like a nonlinear relationship. So. Mm -hmm. Um, for example, uh, the best example of a power law I've found is all the, you're seeing it now to some extent where all the wealth, like look at Jeff Bezos as a power law, like the more wealth he has, the more wealth he's getting. And yeah. you can easily end up with a scenario where Jeff, Jeff Bezos has like 50% of, of the world, right? Because he just keeps compounding year after year and he's compounding on the compounding. Yeah. It's like who can keep up? And like a weird nuance once I've done a lot previously in social media and um, like different brands, marketing, etc. And you'll see with social media managers, I have this thing where 95% of them shouldn't get paid. They're useless. They don't add any value. If anything, sometimes they're just taking up your payroll. They're posting out an Instagram post that nobody fucking sees apart from them and you. Right? It's, just, it's just useless. But for um, like 5% of the social media managers or maybe 1% of the social media managers. Like we saw one recently with like Tesco where it was like saying, um, if you can quote tweet this and get zero likes, we'll give you a free meal. And obviously everybody's trying to quote it, can't do it. When we Everyone's checked yesterday after about 12 hours, I think it was on 130,000 quote tweets. Exactly. So this is, and then you, you think about the individual behind that, the value that they provide 
it, they they should probably get a 10x raise in their salary. So all the all, all the distribution goes right towards the end of the the scale, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. that's what like a power law is, and it's very interesting that yeah, the the higher up you get, the more the rewards are. So even if you look at like a sport like the UFC, like the difference between on salary between Conor McGregor and somebody ten places down from him is so astronomical. But the difference in skill actually isn't that high. But it's yeah, it's fascinating to see how these power laws play out. And it's why in Silicon Valley they always talk about like how can you get a monopoly? Because if you get a monopoly, you 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 own the world basically. How can people utilize that? Is it just a case of moving quickly? That's a good question. I would say one probably do something that um, it's hard to give like specific advice for everybody mm-hmm. without having so much nuance to their their their, their situation, but. Um, I think from a power law perspective of finding out what you sort of super unique to you and then doubling down on that because you if you can come to talk 1% of something the yeah. fact the returns are so are so great and so high that that's where I think the focus should probably lie I think that makes sense we were talking about this the other day that um, the difference between the person that comes first in the 100 meters and everybody else in terms of effort Actual time is not a lot, but in terms of impact is an awful lot. And when you get to the far-flung reaches of performance, we spoke about Coca-Cola. That once you've got that distribution network, you compound on compounding. So, yeah, I like... Uh, well, because you've got to think then they can get a few models of... They can get uh, more uh, network effects, so more and more people... The more word-of-mouth marketing you have, the more word-of-mouth marketing you get, the more... Um, Coca-Cola bottles you can produce the cheaper your margins get so it's like how as soon as those power laws begin to kick in you can get cheaper advertising cheaper products higher quality products like scale. everything everything and it's just nobody can keep up at that stage do you um, do you think that there's a there is a challenge in a society where we're trying to bring up people we're trying to have more not we're trying to have fewer have nots and everybody be part of the haves. Is there an issue with that, with power laws? Because inevitably you're going to end up with winners and everybody else. Well, I was hearing Alex Beck of YouTube talking about, he's very sort of libertarian, very entrepreneurial, and he was like saying, fucking hate Jeff Bezos, because he's going to create a scenario where the rest of the world extremely resent the rich. Because if you actually, if you look at his scale, he's obviously not paying any tax, he's got around that, and you're going to have a build-up of people really hating him but he's untouchable like try and get Jeff Bezos he's got everything around him he's got armed guard you can't get near him so they end up going for the moderately rich which is where he is right and that's where the Jeff Bezos avatar exactly so um, and that's who gets screwed with tax that's who gets screwed with everything else so yeah it's um it's a fascinating argument of where government should intervene versus where they shouldn't intervene like the whole libertarian debate versus Mm -hmm. the um sort of Keynesian debate it's a fascinating even now like you, I think you look at I thought a lot about this of you because of COVID and everything else that was inevitably happening even if you don't fully buy into the whole AI debate there's obviously going to be some jobs that are automated mm-hmm. and for me I'd be fascinated to see again I'm not I don't know the numbers so I'm, I'm probably going void on my previous point but if the government offered a stimulus right now to let's say you took the top 50 job shortages, so software engineering, UX engineering, everything that's going to be very, very future-proofed and there's going to be more demand for it in the future and offering a stimulus for people to drop out of their current job 
to retrain for a year or 18 months and pay them and pay the company to do it. Of course, there's a, there's a hit in terms of taxpayer money there, but the value to that economy over time would be, I wonder if one country did that, would they be the world's leading economy 30 years from now? Because you've taken, because right now, let's say for example, you're doing a regular job that may get automated soon. If you want to drop out and become a UX engineer, you've either got to do it in your own time, take huge financial risks, um, and that, as soon as you get to a certain age, that's just almost unfathomable for most people. So offering that pre-built in would be very, very interesting. Do you think Amazon should be broken up? Is it too big? Fuck no. Like, I think um, one of the fascinating ones is sort of John, John Rockefeller's... Uh, Biography, and you begin to learn about that, like how they they um, they broke up his businesses. I think because of the parallel distribution, they're going to end up where they own everything. But what's interesting from this Charlie talk, he says, when you go through the inversion list, one of the things, so stuff you should avoid is to avoid envy. And he says that the psychology textbooks, if you go through them, there's there's nothing on envy, like which is crazy because in the Bible, it's like one of the first things, thou shalt not envy, and how big of a thing envy is. And he says the way to kind of get around envy is to deserve it. So people are a lot less resentful if you have like a world-class quality product. So he says um, in here, third, with, such, with so much success coming, so when he's talking about Coca-Cola's thing, we must avoid bad effects from envy. Given a prominent place in the 10 commandments because envy is so much a part of human nature. The best way to avoid envy recognized by Aristotle is to plainly deserve the success we get. Therefore, we will be fanatic about product quality, quality of product presenta- presentation and reasonableness of prices, considering the harmless pleasure it will provide. And Amazon have kind of done that. So they still get a lot of envy, a lot of resentment, a lot of hatred, but nobody's boycotting them. From, they, people, from people who are messaging off phones charged by wires they bought on Amazon. Exactly. And then, and then they're going onto Twitter or they're going onto Instagram complaining about it on an AWS server, right? <laughs> so it's, um, that, that's the thing about Amazon. Everybody I know who resents Amazon for like the tax side of things and how much they're monopolizing everything still uses them. So it's kind of, yeah, I, I don't know. It's a very interesting question. I've watched a really, we both have watched some interesting Amazon documentaries over the last few months. And I started to see just how beastly their operation is. And you realize that there's probably going to come a point pretty soon where that growth and the amount of impact that they have, especially when they start to ramp up automated delivery, perhaps with drones or with driverless cars, that you'd be able to do one hour delivery remote warehouse to customer without anyone intervening well the craziest thing about um, Amazon is that AWS was or still is profitable as profitable or more profitable than Amazon and nobody really knows what AWS is. So that's another business. What that is Amazon own. Web Service? Amazon Web Service. So anybody, almost like Netflix, for example, will use Amazon Web Service. So you can imagine the amount of bandwidth that they 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 flow through, right? <laughs> so and that that's Bezos again. What's fascinating about Bezos is very similar to Musk in the sense that I think people can get so complex with it, and I understand why. But and obviously these these two are geniuses that not everybody can imitate or mimic. But he has one guiding principle that every decision goes through. So for Bezos, it's just, we just care about the customer. That's what, if it can enhance the customer experience, let's do it. Basically, if you look at every decision Amazon make, if you go back through the book, um, 
the everything store. Like every decision he makes is, will this enhance the customer experience? Rather than like profit margin, it's just long-term, 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 will this enhance the customer experience? So he says this example of 10 years from now, will people say to me, I want slower deliveries and a higher cost? And he's like, no, no nobody's ever gonna say that to me. They're always gonna say, I love the fact that it's arrived next day. I love how cheap it is, therefore I double down on that. And then Elon Musk, there's an interview on Lex Friedman's show where I forgot who it is that worked with him and he said that Elon Musk, like for as complex as an individual as he is, as intelligent he is and how much he understands, every decision goes through, will this get me nearer to Mars or not? Yes or no? And it's very like crazy how somebody as complex, sophisticated and nuanced as that has just one guiding thing that shapes every single decision whereas a lot of us are like oh, I've got this part of my life I've got this part of my life I've got this interest I've got this whereas for those two at the scale they're at the amount of decision you have to make is just will this enhance customer experience or will this get me nearer to Mars yes or no well it makes for when you've got a chaotic world with an awful lot of different decisions you need a simple guiding principle mm. and I wonder whether in a world with far too much stimulation um, people with poorly defined goals, goals that they've adopted from their family, from their culture, from what they think they should want. It's not surprising that people struggle with decision making because the single guiding principle that they have isn't theirs and there's 40 of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have, they're being pulled in a million different directions, which comes back to direction over speed, right? Or just have a direct, before you even think about speed, just get a direction. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting insight. I, I wonder how people can try and find a guiding principle in their life. You know, because it's too trite to say, oh, just do what makes you happy. You know, like you just sit and masturbate at home all day. Or so maybe that's your guiding principle, right? Yeah. Fantastic. That would work. Yeah. yeah. Um, what else have you got? Any others? So this is what I, one I've, I've made up. I don't think we've been through it before. We may have done. Um, so it's called opportunity cost blindness. So OCB, play on sort of OCD, um, where this is really hard to explain without experiencing it, but just how blind we are to the amount of opportunity cost there is. So often when I found, I mean, I'm not, I've not had that many relationships, but when you're in a relationship, it's either them or single, them or single, them or single. And it's so hard to actually realize that it's them or single or 8 billion other people. You know, <laughs> so it's so, but it's so hard to know that opportunity. Same with jobs. Like we'll, we'll know certain people where they're miserable in a job and it's either, okay, job or leave job and unemployed job, or leave, leave job. And, so there's only one opportunity cost, but they forget how much there is. Because it's like the law of large numbers. I think we really struggle, or I really struggle, to just comprehend how much else exists. And you can only see the options that are available to you. And you only realize that in hindsight, when you go, fucking hell, I was like in this job for four years, and I was like having this argument with my boss every single day in the shower. How much now I'm in this other opportunity, like how laughable that was and how serious I took that because you don't even comprehend the amount of opportunity out there. So I think almost having a filter of I right now do not, I'm, I've got such opportunity cost blindness, I cannot even fathom how much opportunity there is out there. Mm. And just start from that base level filter is probably a smart thing to do, which is tough though. It's very tough. It's reassuring, you know, mm. when you've got difficult decision in front of you. But how many times have people obsessed over what they're going to, I don't know, I'm scared about 
breaking up with a relationship that I know is wrong or leaving a job that I don't enjoy or moving to a new city or retraining, starting education, whatever it might be. And then as soon as you do, you realize, oh, hang on. Like there's so many more paths down here. I just thought it was this or that. For instance, our trip away to Dubai. Mm-hmm. We decided to take a trip away. I'm like, oh God, like I, I don't know whether I should go. There's all of this stuff. And you meet a little bit of resistance. But once you overcome that initial inertia, you realize once you're out here that the, the one thing that you had written as go to Dubai during lockdown actually consists of a million different other routes that are in there. So yeah, we, we certainly bundled together uh, blocks of opportunities into mm. individual sections, which can make for uh, make for a more simplistic worldview in a way that blinds us. Mm. Well, I think even um, I was chatting to a guy called Adam Townsend on Twitter, and he's got some fantastic stuff on this. And he he talks about how like we're so addicted to work, like you almost to get over that. He said, I just need to take three months out. And you just completely realize, like, there's just so much more there. But you, you need the time and the space and often different opportunities. Like, since being out here, we were just saying, like, how you're just in a different news cycle. You don't mm. even realize that you're constantly, oh, this, this, this news cycle is just in your software, just running all the time. It's just, you know, I don't know about you, but when you have, like, um, like dodgy software on your, on your laptop, and you only you, realize... You've, you've got, got loads yeah. of it. <laughs> Perks of the dark web. Um, <laughs> so you've got all this dodgy stuff, and it's just eating your bandwidth but you don't know it until you're out of it mm. and I do think there's so much opportunity cost blindness that even if you can pre-build in like okay I'm not sure if I want to break up with somebody let's just do like three weeks over here with my friend and build in these A-B tests of like okay if I try this what happens here if I try this what happens here Scott Adams has this hilarious bit of I fucking love Scott Adams he, he says um, in his book the, the mistake people make with seeking jobs is they wait till they're unhappy in their job to seek it. And the odds of the perfect job existing when you're ready for it is actually quite slim. So he says as soon as, uh, you should always be looking at new jobs. Like just schedule in like a day or week to just go, is there a new job? Does it pay better? Does it have all this? Because you know what? It, the perfect job for you might be within two months of starting this job. Mm. And he says that that's the key that got him up the corporate ladder before he went off and did cartooning. He, he would just constantly be like what's the best paying job or what's the best ROI for me personally and not wait until they're unhappy because it's so true like people will wait three, four years and they go right I'm at breaking point so psychologically they're done and now you're searching for new jobs so you've got a two week window to do it yeah. and the chances of that two week window being perfect for you um, is going to be slim isn't it interesting how we map our model of relationships onto jobs so in relationship it would be frowned upon to still be flicking through Tinder and Hinge whilst you're in a relationship because, well, you know, if this goes wrong, I, I, you know, what, what if something better comes along? You can't really do that. And I think people treat their jobs, the level of loyalty that they have to their job in a way like that. Um, and I'm not sure because as a business owner, I want my employees to be loyal. But as a growth-minded individual, I want everybody to maximize their happiness and utility. And I think if you're a boss, it's probably not a bad idea for your staff not to be doing that because your turnover is going to be significantly lower. But as a human, I think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, being able to get that solve the principal agent problem, which I guess is another mental model of how do you get agents to act like a principal? How do you get them to What's take... What's the difference? Well, a principal is somebody who 
sort of owns it and has direct skin in the game by the performance of the thing and has so much care over it. Um, so somebody who owns the business, if it performs, they make more money. If it doesn't, they lose a lot of money. Um, whereas an agent could just be somebody who's nine to five on the clock. I get paid regardless of performance pretty much. I've just got to do the bare minimum to get away with it. Um, and being able to, how do you shift agents to principles? So I think Naval says he, he works with like, he always wants to work with one person. So rather than working like a huge agency, it's like, how can I just work with one person? Because if they're directly responsible, it's so much more difficult to sort of shriek responsibility. Whereas there's 10 people in the room, it's like, oh, this might be that bit's that guy's job, that bit's that. So it means the total thing, the outcome of it. There's a load of agents who like, don't really have any personal ownership over it. Whereas if I'm working directly with Chris and it fails, it's Chris's fault. And if it succeeds, it's Chris's, it's Chris's success. Mm. So it being able to solve that principal agent, which is why so many startups give equity. I've seen people who, even though the equity game, yeah, that maybe a few percent of them win, like 95, 99, never make anything. People who will justify working crazy hours because they have 1% of the business. Mm. So being able to pivot that to a principal mindset is, is a very interesting thing. What mental model do you wish that more of your friends and family knew? I don't know. I, don't, I wouldn't want to put something on the friends and family. Um, I guess it, inversion, say. Stop hanging out with me. No, um, I don't know. Yeah, so that's a really tough one. I guess it's so, this is the issue I have with even like a lot of podcasts and a lot of advice is it's just so fucking nuanced and so subjective to the individual. And I think you're seeing this with dieters now, right? I, I know people who, who have nuts and they die, right? Johnny. Whereas, uh, Johnny, yeah, yeah, shout out Johnny. Whereas I have nuts and I'm fine. It's like, so, so then to have like one, which is why I kind of like mental models because you can take different things from each discipline and apply it. But when it's like, you should do X or you should 10X, right? I just think that's bollocks because it's so subjective and nuanced to the individual. Like, I think we chatted about this previously. Like even the word entrepreneur, I have an issue with it because there's so much like microcosms within entrepreneurship. Joe Rogan is so different to Jeff Bezos. If you put Jeff Bezos in Joe Rogan's shoes, it would flop. If you put Joe Rogan in Jeff Bezos' shoes, it would win. But we're told these two people are still entrepreneurs. For me, it feels like it's so different. There's so much subjectivity out in the world that I think the only thing when it comes to advice is to look at, again, the fundamental principles, the fundamental foundations. So Gary Vee has that, the dirt and the clouds. The clouds are these big mental models. And the dirt is so specific and tactical to your field mm. that somebody like me going chatting to a machine learning engineer or chatting to somebody in physical retail it's just mm. bought, like yeah there's a few overlying principles that may help like compound interest power laws da, 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 da. but there's so much subjectivity to each individual that I think is so neglected by self-improvement in the self-help sector because it's as nuanced as your diet. It's as nuanced as your genetic code, I think. Yeah. The, what everybody's trying to do is find a commonality that permits one piece of advice to fit many, like one size fits all advice, right? But I would say, I certainly think that a lot of my friends and family would do with contrast. Mm. Like, I, th I, I think there's very few people... Why do I talk about myself? Because I, I always feel that as soon as I you start talking about somebody else, you don't know them as well as yourself. Mm. Whereas at least I know me very well. And I think that you, you can easily be in a situation where you give other people advice and you're just so detached from it. You see it like so much online. I just think it's a bit... 
what mental model do you wish that you could implement? Oh, that's a better question. Um, leverage, leverage, because I'm a workaholic by trade. Like, like, so like my when I was like eleven, my dad bet me I couldn't do ten kickups with a football. I then spent five years training five hours a day doing kickups with a football. If anything, it was a great to do ten to do ten five no, hours to get. I got, 10 I got a lot better. I got a lot better. Um, so I start, that came like as a little mini job when I was younger, but. That taught me that power of working hard and growth mindset. So it was super valuable in that respect. But it also means that I will then try and do 100 responsibilities and I won't understand necessarily the power of leverage as much. So having more people working for you, having more code working for you, having more media working for you is a, uh, an unbelievable tool that I'm only beginning to wrap my head around. What was that quote that you gave me about like lazy people make the best employees because they'll find shortcuts yeah, to do work? Yeah. Exactly. So you, that that's the like I I've said this before. If I could, you know what? Talk about friends and family. I wouldn't give them like, any advice or that sort of thing. So it's so nuanced to them. The only thing I'd say is get working knowledge of Zapier because if you have if you, like, <laughs> if you have and the reason why it's because of leverage and automation. Zapier. I think. Zapier, if you, if again going back to government stimuluses, if Zapier said we will pay for your five day leave to learn Zapier, if the government said that, the value to the economy would be the amount of people who right now are going on emails, copying something, putting it in a Google Sheet, or going from a Facebook ad and putting it into a different document. All Zapier is is every major app connected, and this isn't a sponsorship by the way, I'll do this for free, yeah. connected. I genuinely think if you taught people that no code skill, the ability to automate things and almost become like a like a developer of 18 months in like the space of three days, the productivity for the economy would be amazing. And the first time you have a Zapier thing that works for you and you can just see this flowing, like we could be like, now I've got Zaps running. It's the best thing ever. I know once our chat's done, it's going to have taken a hundred people from different Facebook ads and it's already automated and sent them an email. Whereas previously I'd have to go in, get the CSV, send that. So Zapier for me, in terms of an applied mental model of leverage, is the best thing for somebody who can't code. That's interesting. That is really, really interesting. I um, I like, I was taught this by my first ever boss of an events company, is outsourcing. I know that Naval's a, a big fan of if something costs you less than your hourly rate to do it, then either outsource it or just throw it away. So, uh, yeah, that, I think that's a great nuance point. If it's the hourly rate side of things, but sometimes I will see it with certain businesses that I work with where they outsource too much and then they become they become foreign to it and they just trust people who say they're experts at it. Like mm-hmm. One of the best D2C guys I've met, which is a guy called Danny Book on Twitter, he said to me, he went into direct-to-consumer and decided to do all the ads himself. Obviously, he outsourced like learning and he does hire consultants to come in and train them. But he said, this is the most fundamental part of the business. I'm not outsourcing it. Whereas I've seen so many other businesses just like, this is the most fundamental part of our business. Boom, pass it over there. So it's really interesting like how that balance between outsourcing, but also how do you not get bullshitted by the people you've outsourced to? So you almost need enough base level knowledge. And maybe that's like applied mental models for like knowing basic numeracy. So when they say certain things to you, you can check things off. But that's an issue that Charlie talks about, that you need these fundamental mental models in place because if you do outsource, you need to be able to have enough knowledge of that field to be able to call bullshit. Mm. Otherwise, you can just somebody can sound smart and just trick you. I wonder how many people lie on the side of the spectrum where they outsource too much versus how many lie on the side of the spectrum Good where question. they do too much. I would say 
based on my experience, more people are on the latter and that might be a selection effect from the type of friends that I've got, but workaholics, people from a classic working class background, um, they will tend to look to save money where they can. And on top of that, I think the neuroticism that you have, the fear of something not being done correctly and the time investment it takes to teach someone how to be George Mack dot doc X, like writing that manifesto tough. is such a huge hurdle to overcome. And you think, right, okay, I could do that and automate my life, but I'd have to take three months off of my life to do that. Mm. And I see so commonly in business, like one of the most frequent bits of advice that I give people is you should not be doing that. That's not your job. That was your job seven months ago or seven years ago and for some reason you're still doing you're still replying to the instagram dms or you you're still dealing with the level two customer inquiries over email like the first person that it gets up level to is you after the person that deals with the customers like no that's not your job was there a one specific thing for you where that you maybe held on for too long and then delegated it and you was like Oh my God, I can't believe how good this is. Everything in my business. Was, any specific, was there yeah, one yeah. thing where it clicked and you was like... So the main, the main one, the most stupid thing that I used to do was set up the nightclub on a Saturday morning. So I didn't miss a Saturday at my first weekly event, Voodoo, for 204 weeks. So just shy of four years. And the only reason I missed like the 205th was because I had a chest infection that had me bed back, like strapped to the bed, bed bound. Other than that, hungover, fresh, ill, what every different iteration of life for four years, I was there outside the same club for four years. And I used to spend my Saturday morning into afternoon, 11 till 2 or 3, setting up the club. And that was just hanging up inflatables. Anyone who's ever been to a nightclub and noticed the extra decor, most of that, make sure the decks are right, do a sound check, piss off. You could have paid a couple of students 30 quid each they would have got more value out of it because they need the 30 quid more than I need to lose three hours of my time. Mm. And I would have retained, because I was working every night as well, but for some reason I was terrified that the cable ties were gonna be put on wrongly. Oh, well, if the cable tie isn't that way. And it, it came from a catastrophic mindset that I presumed if the cable ties were on wrong, that would be the beginning of the avalanche that collapsed the business. It's born out of working in an industry which is very fickle, very, very fast moving. Everyone knows what it's like. Like the, the cool spot to go to last week is nobody even goes there. This It's like COVID just hits one venue at once and everybody dissipates. And that creates a level of ambient anxiety that pervades through the, the source code of the industry. And that was maybe uh, made worse by my own um, personality. And when all of that got piled together, yeah, I, I struggled to let go of so much stuff. Setting up the venue was one of them. Doing the accounts was another one. I didn't need to sit and watch the accounts. Oh my God, here's another one. So we used to have, the way that the guest list was set up for our events, I used to take the plus number, so George Mack plus three. I used to take the plus number and put it in another column. Why? Why on earth? Like I don't need a fully justified number column. It makes no difference. It's being seen by one guy in the front door and that guy's me. Like, I don't need to do this, but I would take... And the guest list was 300 names, 400 names, doing 1,500 people a night. And I'd be going through... I wouldn't have done a macro for it. I wouldn't have, like, automated it. I would do it manually. And it took until that one day, and I was like, what am I doing? 
So that very much, I think, is sweating the small stuff mm. and obsessing over things without perspective. One of the problems of being an entrepreneur or a business person or someone that has a hobby that you care about is when you're this close to it, when you are mm. in the dirt, very hard to get perspective and look at where should I be, where am I adding the most value, right? It's opportunity cost blindness again, isn't it, really? Like you don't have the ability to step out. And it's interesting that the reason why, the only reason it happened to you is because you said, what, you ended up in hospital, you got ill. Like it's crazy that you get to the stage. But imagine if that never happened, you'd probably still be doing it, right? You probably, probably wouldn't be here right now. Like, for her. It's, it's weird. It's very weird. So maybe the, the nuance between what I'm saying of don't delegate too much, what you're saying people need to delegate more is, and then there's that, I think, I don't know if it's Parrish or Naval, who, but if it involves judgment or creativity, or, and it's the highest priority thing, then have 100% obsessive ownership over it. And if it's something that doesn't involve that, if it's just like manual task or stuff that you can train somebody for, then outsource immediately. Mm. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot this year is mental masturbation. Mm -hmm. So I think people who enjoy the mental models world can often become too cerebral Mm -hmm. around finding their solutions for it. You can think that all the answers to your questions just lie at the bottom of being able to recite poor Charlie's almanac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the compliance and the ability to deploy that actually makes all of the difference. It is multiplying by zero if you're not able to do it. So how can people that are listening, perhaps, you know, fourth episode deep in this particular series, have you got any ways that you ensure that you don't just mentally jerk off with this sort of stuff and that you actually try and apply it? So hard again without knowing like, but how do you do it? subjective. It's a good question. It's definitely something I've got a lot better at. Um, I think... I think it's much easier when you've committed to certain things and then there's people that hold you accountable to them. So if it's just you working alone on a project, it's much harder. But I think as soon as you're like quite public that you're working on something or you've got a partner to be working on something or you've got employees you have to do it for, then I don't know, you can't just go like, all right, guys, I'm going to turn up to the Monday morning meeting because I'm going to go and read for five hours. Like you've got to then maybe schedule your reading for a certain time, but then you have to execute. So I think that's great. And then I think going back to numbers as well, I think, you just can't cheat numbers. So if, for example, um, you, I guess you'll know this better than me, but in like the gym side of things, you can't cheat the numbers. So if the numbers aren't changing, i.e. whatever your metric is, whatever you decide on as your metrics, whether that's money or whether that's, I don't know, weights lifted in a gym or whether it's calories consumed or whether it's number of times I'm seeing my parents. Revenue, top line sales. Whatever you can basically, I know this sounds very like um, people feel that you can sometimes over quantify life but I'd say on the most part people don't do it enough so if you quantify things and it doesn't improve start changing variables and I think that's it like again you don't the whole the whole thing about that answer there like the whole mental masturbation if you then start mentally masturbating over the answer it's just a fucking it's just, a, round, cycle. Yeah, it's just a hamster on a thing so I think get a number of a thing that you want to change and throw variables in does the does it change if not why change the variable again and mm. just keep doing that and then just keep a track of that number so it's very simple has the revenue gone up has my time spent on this activity gone up has my elo score at chess.com gone up yeah has it it has indeed it has nice indeed. yeah nice uh, right we are going to play a game of bull or bear okay and bull or bear is something we've been doing in our whatsapp chat for a little while which yeah. is where one of the guys will post anything and everyone will reply with an emoji, bull or bear. So you can play, you can play along at home. Uh, bull or bear, faith in the voting system. Oh, look, um, 
faith in the voting system. So, oh, that's a really hard. I'm bare on the way it currently is, but I'm bull on the way my way is. Where it What's your be. solution? So, well, I thought about this. Talk about an elephant in the room. 2020 will be remembered as the year where pens and paper were redundant unless it was deciding the most powerful person in the world. Or people counting numbers repetitively on low-wage jobs were redundant unless it was deciding the election. Imagine if you go to your bank, and let's say you have £20,000 in your bank, or 10, let's say you have £10,000 in your bank, and you go, how much money do I have in my bank? Rather than having it automated by computers and robots doing it for you, it's a guy in the back room who goes, right, give me, a, give me overnight. And he goes there, pound coin by pound coin, going, oh, one pound, one pound, one pound, oh, 10p, 10p, 10p. And he comes back with that number. That number will be false. There's no way about that, whether you're a Trump fan or Biden fan or whoever, you, I don't know, whatever country you're from, having this system of people counting things and it being done by pen and paper is fucking ludicrous. Like, it is <laughs> mental. Because it's, it's, no matter your side, it is wrong. It, like, the number will be wrong. Yeah. Because when they recount it, it's reason, The only reason it could be right is by the errors on one side fixing the errors on another. Like, if you, if you somehow won in a billion trillion chance they were all correct, it wouldn't be because they were accurately counted. It's because lapses yeah, yeah. on one side would end up. So what's your solution? Um, blockchain. So it's, it's so it's so obvious, right? You can just everyone has an encrypted key. It, you submit it, therefore you can go. You can everybody can go back and see theirs. It's stored in a blockchain. Nobody can interfere with it. The amount of votes that will go up as a result of it, because people can do it from their smartphone rather than having to go to a polling station and catch something. You can't cheat. There's no. It's very hard for electoral fraud to happen. Obviously, whether the technology is there yet to be able to do it. The issue is very few governments are they're they're so backwards in their thinking. But that seems inevitable like it seems so inevitable after this year that you can't have pen and paper any why is pen and paper still involved why are humans still counting numbers it's ridiculous so let's say that pen and paper gets disbanded yeah but blockchain doesn't get brought in are you bearish or bullish Ooh, that's good i mean I, so if you want to go down a rabbit hole the best guy content is called a guy called george hotz and he hacks into, he's the first guy I think to hack into the iPhone, the first guy to hack into the Sony PlayStation. So he'll hack into anything and he'll show examples of how easy it is to hack into your iPhone. Just turn your camera on and start recording you. Oh, um, he can hack into, scary. he shows how you can hack into cars. So if you think the government's IT team, bear in mind that like in the UK, the government NHS is the largest buyer of fax machines in the world, how backwards they are. I reckon even I have a bit of HTML and five hours on Code Academy could probably hack into it. So I'm pretty bearish on that unless they bring the best people in. So I still think it's going to be a shit show for a while, yeah. That's not great. Uh, Brian Rose for London Mayor, bear or bull? Massive bull, yeah, massive bull. Are you? Yeah, Are you bull. really? I don't know. Well, I think Is he like, paying I you I think he's third favourite. And um, I know you're probably a bear. I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't really have an opinion. I'd probably say bull. Kanye 2024, bear or bull? Bear because he'll have to be. If he could win Republican or de- Democrat, then I'm I'm a bit bull because then he might do a Trump. But I think he'll have to be independent. I, I just don't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah, the thing about Kanye is that going on Rogan and getting asked hard questions and then sitting in silence for thirty seconds, yeah. like I, I, so many people are seduced by artistic capacity in one domain and presuming that it means genius across them all. It's like there's not that many polymaths out there. And they're, they're kind of like bizarrely, they're quite easy to spot. Like you hear Eric speak and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
he'll he'll move seamlessly from cephalopods to classical Latin music to like complex physics to whatever. Stephen Wolfram, you'll hear him move between crazy different areas. It comes back to that kind of blagging it mentality. Fashion's very easy to blag as well. Like fashion is it's built, it, it's on, built on blag. It's built yeah. on reflexivity. It's just how people react to things. So. Yeah, I, I listened to that Rogan thing and it, my mind was a pendulum of genius, madman. It would just, it would just, swi- it would just switch <laughs> back and forth. It's so hard to say, right? It's so hard to knock his success at the same time. Uh, bearable sex robots. <clears throat> um, personal or, or society? <laughs> Wait, give, give us both. Um, I mean, probably, probably bull, I think, is the way it ends up. Uh, as costs go down, the only thing that I can see, the only thing that happens potentially before then is the printing viruses. I think is probably inevitable. So when oh, we get okay, so you get a virtual sexually transmitted infection. No, from no, no. I just think we could get. I think we could just get killed off before then. But then again, if we do have a printed virus scenario where, so George Hotz, we talk. Is this a nanotechnology thing? Well, this, this, so I was listening to George Hotz, so he does this five-hour Python stream where he's just coding things, and he's just like the most intense man ever. <laughs> and he's talking about. He'll pull up Google really fast. And he goes, "How many base pairs are in the coronavirus? Ten thousand base pairs." He goes, "How much does it cost to print a base pair?" And it's like three dollars. He goes, "So it would cost me thirty thousand dollars to start printing the coronavirus." Could you imagine where the future of technology? going to be and he just kind of looks at the camera like that I'm like oh fuck yeah he's so right isn't he like if the 3D printing technology is going to go down you can access the genomes of all these things and just take the base pairs That's, but then again if we all, all keep doing these pandemic lockdowns then sex robots are going to sex robots are going up one of the interesting things I read it's uh, Jeffrey Miller's other half the woman who's scientist on uh, sentientist on Twitter and she was talking about how in a society, an increase in freely available sexual satisfaction actually turns down sexual assaults and overall aggression. And the reason for that is that most of the sexual assaults are born out of people feeling like they can't win in the normal game. But by gaming the system, like it doesn't matter that you couldn't win in the real world, but you get to win in the fake world and that doesn't fix it. It's like we're able to hack into our own programming sort of fairly easily. Mm-hmm. And that's one of them. So watch a, watch a movie and see how that works, yeah. Porn does exactly the same thing. Uh, final one, remote working for the majority of a workforce. Let's consider here, before you go into it, people who need contact around others who require that working environment it's tough i'm thinking about this like hiring and do we hire so on one hand if you hire remote you have access to so much more talent and sometimes at a more affordable price so i said remote work is the best thing possible to happen to talented people in the developing world and the worst thing possible to happen to talentless people in the developed world because like there's so many things where there's somebody in another side of the world that can do it for a quarter of the price, 10x the work ethic, and 5x the brains. So I'm pretty bullish on it, certainly for the developing world and the wonders it's going to do of flowing money out there. But I do have concerns that for people who are talentless in the developed, oh, I know talentless is a strong word, but aren't as skilled in the developed world what that does for them competitive versus uncompetitive yeah so I think it's the pendulum's going to obviously shift a bit further back to where it was but it's never going to go back that way just because there's some people who I know that will refuse to take a job that is in an office now really yeah there's definitely people who will 
Um, I think the ideal, this talk about this where like these big tech companies who are uh, shutting down their offices are now just having like we work spaces that people can drop in, do meetings, but then they live around the city. I think that's probably more likely. But I said this when, um, when all these tech companies start working from home, I go, that's a hacker's fucking dream. Because now you've got so many people at home Wi-Fi's and Alexa devices that you can hack into. And then you look at the Twitter hack that happened, yeah. they're all working from home. And the, it came, I remember at the time, I was going, definitely some of them working from home. Do you know where it Three came months from? later, it was a couple of kids, right? Um, but it came from, I think, um, it's the classic, they're pretending to be security and they got in that way. But they said that it was way easier because of the fact they were working from home. So if you want a trillion dollar idea, cybersecurity for remote work. Christ. Yeah, I mean, what what the the level of security that you have that gets built into offices? That's part of the thing that people don't realise that you just presume your office is the brick walls, the air conditioning, and the cafeteria downstairs. Mm. But it's not. It's all of the infrastructure that permits you to do your work in a secure way as well. That logs stuff. That's got cloud storage. That's constantly updating. That you know. Yeah, you you really correct. That's terrifying. There's probably some industries in which remote working just needs to. Let, let's not let's not decentralize the Pentagon, you know. Let's not have the nuclear football be available on an app on like Trump or Biden's phone yeah. or something like that. Yeah, man. Well, look, that was awesome, dude. I'm so glad that you're out here with me. I'm really happy to go through this as well. I think if people are keen, I reckon that we can do some much longer episodes playing bearable. And get some submissions through. Yeah, if you're bull on bear or bull, send the, send send the, send the bull emoji. Send the bull, if you're bear, just send the bear emoji. Yeah, that's it. Uh, where should people go? They want to check out your stuff. And also, what you're doing now, people might want to know where what's happening in your life. Give us the elevator pitch. Yeah, so mainly uh, blockchain sex robots. <laughs> <laughs> no, so um, if you want to find me, Twitter's usually the best place. I'm on there a little bit, um, which is George underscore underscore M A C K. Um, and then in terms of myself, primarily e-commerce, D2C, agency, so paid social, Shopify builds, customer acquisition, text message, SMS, and then looking at our own products as well. So if you've got a product that you want to scale or you just want to have a conversation, that's now. Peace. Dude, it's always a pleasure to have you cool. here. Thank you to everybody for tuning in. Let us know about Bear or Bull. I think it's a really cool idea and I want to do more of them and it's funny. And yeah, we're going to grab another coffee, a little bit of sun, do an afternoon of work. Looking forward to it. Peace. Oh.